If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I want to introduce myself. My name is David Morris. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Sulphur Community Church. And uh, I want to invite you to join with us. Uh, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We'll be in Genesis chapter 22 this week. Uh, we have been uh, going through uh, this series called the, the Crushed Head and the Bruised Heel, uh, where we started in the very beginning of Genesis, and we're kind of working our way through the main storylines of Scripture from beginning to end so that we can see the, the big picture of the gospel as it's communicated in God's Word. And so if you are visiting with us uh, each week, we, uh, our media team will post a guide for you to, to uh, kind of encourage you to go further in your study. And so you can go to our website, and you'll see that. Uh, if you ever want to go back and listen, we have a podcast. Uh, so you can subscribe to our podcast. And each week, uh, the, the sermon audio will be uploaded. The sermon audio is also uploaded on our website. So if you wanted to go back and, and, and listen to it again, if there was something, may, I heard him say something, let me go back and, and look into that a little bit more. You can do that. We also have video. So each week our, our video is up. So if you're at home on Tuesday night and it's 8 o'clock instead of turning on Netflix, you want to go back and watch the sermon and just uh, to help you study more deeply, you can do that. Our media team, very grateful for all the work that they do. Um, so if you are visiting this week, you can get a guide. I can actually give you one uh, if you want one. I've printed out a few copies for you for th this coming week uh, with our, our series uh, as we go into Genesis 22. So as we're there, I, wanna, I want you to stop before we get into the text. I want you to imagine something with me. I'm going to give you a scenario. You are the captain of a ship that is at sea in the night. As the captain, you are responsible for the safe passage of every single person on that ship. There's a problem, though. Your ship has struck something in the night, and you have begun to take on water. Your crew and the passengers have thrown overboard absolutely everything possible to lighten the ship. It is still taking on a little bit of water, so you must act quickly. You cannot delay. You know that if you can just get rid of a little more weight, you would be able to make it safely to shore. The only thing left that could possibly go overboard are human beings. You can't sacrifice yourself. You're irreplaceable. As the one who knows the seas and knows the ship, you must stay on board to lead everyone else to safety. If you can only figure out a way to lose just a little more weight. Scenario one. As you stand on the edge of the ship, looking for land or possibly another ship to help, there is a passenger standing next to you. His back is to you, as he too is looking out at sea. He is not one of your crew, and you do not know the man. But you do know that all you have to do is push him overboard, and everyone else will make it. He wouldn't know you did it before it was too late. You don't know him. No one else will see you do it. But if you push him overboard, everyone else on the ship lives. If not, everyone will die. Do you push him? Scenario two. 
Same situation. You're standing on the edge of the ship. You're still looking for land or another ship to help. There is a man standing next to you, but this time you do know the man. He's one of your crew. And he is not looking out at sea. He's looking at you face to face. He's come to you to see, Captain, is there anything else we can do to help? And you know there's nothing else except someone must go overboard. He's standing there on the edge of the ship. No one else is there with you. All you have to do is give him a nudge and he'll go overboard and everyone else will live. Unlike scenario one, he is looking at you face to face and so he will see it coming. Unlike scenario one, you do know him. If you don't push him, Everyone will die. But you have to push him overboard. Do you do it? Scenario three. Very similar to scenario two. There is one who's standing next to you, but this time it is someone you know. You know him very well, actually, because he is your son. No one else is around you, but your son has come to you saying, Father, Is there anything else we can do to lighten the ship? What else can we do? And and you know all you have to do is push your son over the edge. You do so, everyone else will live. Do you push him? Studies with similar scenarios as these have been done, and the results indicate probably something that you felt while you were trying to make those quick decisions when faced with the scenarios, the situations. And those those studies reveal that the more disconnected we are from the one who is to be sacrificed, the easier it is to make that sacrifice. So in scenario one, we we have a man who has his back to us. We, We don't know him. He doesn't know us. And he won't even know what happened to him until it's too late. It would be easier to push that man than the man that you do know who's staring at you face to face and you have to push him in the chest as he would fall off the edge. Even more so scenario three, as the connection intensifies when it's your own son who is standing there. And what we begin to see are the limits that we we have, that we've set that will communicate to us how far we're willing to go to sacrifice for the sake of others. What are the limits that we have? What what cost is too great for us to say, that's where I stop. That's where I won't sacrifice. In our text this morning, we see a man who is faced with his own unique test. It will test his limits. And the gospel implications will reveal to us as we consider theologically what it communicates, that God knows no such limits. He does go to the extreme. Last week we were introduced to Abram and Sarai, both later to be renamed as Abraham and Sarah. And while there was much we could have discussed over the course of the ten chapters that we worked through, our focus was on this covenant promise of the son that would come, Isaac. From the day Abram and Sarai were married to his 75th year, as we saw last week, they struggled with infertility. Most assuredly, they had given up at that point. The the hope of a son had escaped them. 
by the point that we see them in that story. And regardless, whether or not you have actually struggled with that battle of infertility, you, you can understand where Abram and Sarai were whenever they when God said, hey, we're going to give you a son. They, it says that they laughed, right? Partially with sadness, but partially with disbelief. Like, how is this to happen in my old age? But God gave him a promise in his 75th year. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Moses wrote, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In verse 7, after arriving in the land of Canaan, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And Joey pointed out to us last week in verse 7 that there were two promises that God gave Abram in that, in that verse. He said, I will give you offspring and I will give you land. And a lot of our time last week was spent on focus, focused on the beginning of the fulfillment of that first promise, that offspring would come. And then by my count, at least 11 more times from Genesis 12, 7 to Genesis 20, and over the course of 25 years, on top of the 75 that Abraham and Sarah had already waited, God reassured Abraham that he would fulfill that promise. He went as far as to say, hey, not only will I give you a son, but his name, you will call him Isaac, son of laughter. And as we concluded our time together last week, we celebrated with Abraham and Sarah as we, as we saw that the son did indeed come, that God provided in a miraculous way to a barren woman and an old man. And as we celebrated the miraculous birth of Isaac, we considered the birth of Jesus Christ, the promised son of God who was born miraculously to a virgin girl named Mary, the promised son who came to rescue us from our sins. In our text of study this morning in Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and his son Isaac takes an interesting turn. Genesis 22 is written in such a way that we can identify four natural breaks. First, we will see that God tests people of faith. Then we will see that faithful people obey. And in their obedience, we will see that God provides for them. And lastly, we see that God rewards obedience. Follow along with me as I read from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. As we begin this chapter, we see that God tests people of faith. We see a test that's given to Abraham. He starts off and it says, after these things. So we don't necessarily know how long, how much time has occurred from chapter 21 to chapter 22. We know it's after, of course. But then it says these things. Well, what are these things? Well, we know in chapter 21 that the birth of Isaac has occurred. We know that, that Abraham has also dismissed Hagar and Ishmael. And we also know that he has made a treaty with Abimelech. So there has been a span of time that has occurred from chapter 21 to today in chapter 22. And it said God tested Abraham. Notice that God is the source of the test. Meaning that that what Abraham will go through will occur according to the will of God. This is God's test of Abraham. It's also important as we get into this to consider the fact that, that today you and I have the benefit of reading this thousands of years after the events actually occurred. And our author also wrote this after the event occurred. So we know that it's a test. But Abraham did not. All Abraham knew was God gave a command and he was to obey. It's important because I don't want you to underestimate the obedience of Abraham as we get into our text. So God tested Abraham. 
And if you're like me, I want to ask the question, why? Like, why did God test Abraham? Why does God test his people? Well, we know from Scripture that these tests are given by God to reveal to his people something about themselves. It's to reveal something about their hearts. And it's also to produce some good things in them. In Exodus chapter 20, 20, after God has given Moses the Ten Commandments and Moses has descended from the mountain, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. That test was to produce the fear of God in them so that they would be holy. They would not sin. Deuteronomy 13, 3, Moses wrote... He, he was giving a warning to the people. He said, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The test was to reveal something about their hearts. Do they love God with everything that they are? James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 James wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Same chapter, verse 12. James wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God tests his people to reveal to them the limits of their faith. He tests them to produce in them a proper view of who God is. And he, pr he produces perseverance in their holiness. And while each test is unique, just as Abraham's was, I mean, none of us are being, let me go ahead and put a disclaimer, you're not being asked to sacrifice your child today. Right? Right? Okay. Um, you're, but each test is unique. But what we see are some very similar characteristics. And oftentimes what's being asked in the test is that we would sacrifice something that is meaningful to us. Something that's good. Something possibly that even came from God. We are to die to ourselves and submit to his will. This was certainly true in Abraham's test. God called out to Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham responded, here I am. And the test was, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And God's proclamation of this test is intended to remind Abraham of the covenant promise in Genesis chapter 12. If you recall, in Genesis chapter 12, where was he called to leave? He was told to leave his country, his father's household, and his family. And one of the things Joey pointed out to us last week is, as each word or each phrase was said, it increased the intimacy of, that Abraham had. A country, a household, a family. And then he was to go to the land that God would show him. What do we see here in Genesis chapter 22? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. 
the, the intimacy increases with each phrase. And what does he say? Go to the mountain that I will show you. In the midst of the test, God is also reminding him of his covenant promise. This is, this, for me, I'm thinking through this. If I'm Abraham, this is very confusing, right? I'm thinking of that covenant promise that told me through Isaac, my offspring would inherit the land and the test is to go sacrifice Isaac. One of the things he says is your only son. And so we, I, need, I want to handle that just briefly. Chapter 21, we see that Abraham dismissed Ishmael from him. We also see whenever God was get, going through the course of the covenant promise, when God was bringing these things up, and he was like, can you just, before Isaac was born, Abraham would say, can you just be satisfied with Ishmael? And if you recall, Abraham and Sarah, they went outside of God's will to try to accomplish this thing, right? God said, I will give you a son, and they're barren. Hey, take Hagar. And God said, no, that's not how it's going to go. That's not according to my plan. I will give you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. So he has sent Ishmael away, and so now Isaac is his only son. And then he says, whom you love. Interestingly enough, when I was studying, this is the first mention of love in Scripture. And when does it come up? To describe a relationship between a father and a and a son who is to be sacrificed. It's the definition of love. He said offer him there as a burnt offering. So it would be easy for us to understand if Abraham was confused by this. This is his son, his only son, the promised son Isaac, who was specifically named by God and chosen by God to be the heir of Abraham and the recipient of the continued covenant promise of God. And now Abraham is supposed to kill him? He's supposed to offer him as a burnt offering? And what that means, just so you know, because it, it will play a, a role later on when we actually see Abraham uh, follow through in obedience, a burnt offering was to be wholly consumed. It wasn't like just light him and walk away. Stay there, remain, until that offering is fully consumed. It just doesn't make sense. After 25 years of waiting on God to fulfill this promise, and the way in which he did so, only to have him killed afterwards? You see, the test of Abraham was not the sacrifice of his son. The test of Abraham was the sacrifice of himself. He was to die to himself. He was the sacrifice of his own will and his own desires to submit to the will of God and trust in his faithfulness. It was a test of faith. Abraham was faced with the question, will God keep his promises? Abraham was faced with the decision, do I love God or do I love his present? Do I love his gift? As we consider how we might apply God's word this morning, I ask you, are you being tested by God? One of the things we see is that Abraham didn't know he was being tested. All he knew was that God had given him a command and that he was to obey. So I ask, might you be disobedient this morning? What is God asking you to sacrifice? I say, 
What is God telling you to sacrifice or surrender? Are you surrendering your will in submission to God's? Do you trust God's promises that he is sovereign, that he is working all things out for your good? Even if you don't know what's going on? Are you being obedient? Because what we see in this text is that faithful people obey God. We see that in verses 3 through 10. And as we move through there, we, we will see some characteristics of true obedience. The first being that true obedience is prompt. In verse 3, we see that Abraham rose early in the morning. There is no delay. There is no negotiating with God. Well, hold on, God. You told me that Isaac's supposed to be the one. Why are you asking me? He didn't do that. There was no conversation there that was recorded for us. There's no let me pray about it and see if this is right. All we see is Abraham rising up early in the morning and preparing for the trip. He saddles his donkey. He goes and he grabs a couple of young men and his son Isaac. He goes and he cuts the wood for the burnt offering. And you just got to imagine Abraham making the decision, how much wood will I need to, to spark a fire and, and to be able to have it last long enough and get hot enough to consume my son? But what we see also there is that Abraham is not leaving anything to doubt. Like Abraham is not saying, well, I'm not going to bring wood with me because if I get up on the mountain and there's no wood, well, I've got to come back. God, I couldn't do it. There's nothing up there for me to, to light the fire. He prepares everything so that he can be obedient. Once everything is packed, they set out. True obedience is prompt. True obedience also perseveres. In verse 4, we see on the third day. So between verse 3 and verse 4, there's three days of travel. On the third day, Abraham sees the place from far away. Keep in mind, Abraham is over 100 years old at this point. That's a long journey. That's a lot of travel for an old man. Physically, he persevered. He pushed through. But also think about this. For three days, this father has traveled with his son, knowing what lies ahead. Three days of travel like that is a lot of time for doubt and pride and selfishness to creep in. And honestly, how many of us would have blamed him if he would have decided not to go through with it? Right? But Abraham persevered in his obedience to God. True obedience perseveres. True obedience also is worship. In verse 5, Abraham and Isaac, when they, they get to the foot of the mountain, they leave the young men with the donkey, and they finish their trek up the mountain on foot together. Notice here how Abraham is taking responsibility for his own obedience. He's not going to leave the dirty work to his two young men that are with him. Instead, he leaves them behind and he goes up the mountain with his son Isaac because he must obey. And then notice how he says, what he says to those two young men. He said, hey, I and the boy, we're going to go and we're going to worship. Because true obedience is worship. He was committed to doing so because he was worshiping the God that he loved. Jesus told us in John chapter 14 that if we love him, what will we do? 
obey his commands. We will keep them. So obedience comes from love. Obedience is an act of worship. So Abraham, out of his committed love for God, continues on in obedience in order that he might worship God. We also see that true obedience to God stems from faith in God. And that's really where the drama unfolds for us. In verse 5, Abraham tells his two young men that both he and the boy will come again to them once they complete this act of worship. So in verse 6, he places the wood for the offering on his son Isaac. Apparently Isaac is strong enough, this is important to point out, Isaac is strong enough to at least be able to carry the wood on his back, enough wood that would fully consume his own body. Abraham carries the fire and the knife. The knife is not like a pocket knife that some of you are carrying today. It's more likely like a machete. Something that would have been used to sacrifice an animal, to slaughter, as we see later on. In verse 7, we see the intimacy between a father and a son. And, you know, so often, parents, our children, in their innocence, ask us questions that we're not prepared to answer. And I imagine that Abraham experienced this that, that day. When his son says, my father, and Abraham says, here I am, my son. You can almost audibly hear the pain in that response of Abraham to his son. You can feel the pain in his heart. as He's having to respond to his son when his son says, but father, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice, father? Verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide the lamb, my son. Verses 9 through 10, they arrive. Abraham builds the altar. He lays the wood in order, and Isaac is bound on top. Notice there's no description of a struggle here with Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is strong enough to carry the wood up the mountain. Abraham is well over 100 years old, but somehow Isaac ends up bound on the wood. What type of submission to the Father's will that must have been? Bible scholars and historians indicate that he was at least a teenager here. Jewish tradition says he's 37 years old. All opinions on the matter indicate that he could have gotten away from Abraham if he wanted to. Yet we see nothing of the sort described. But then we ask the question, what was Abraham thinking? As Abraham lays his son on the wood, bounds him, picks up the machete, the knife, to slaughter, it says, his son. What was he thinking? Hold your place in Genesis chapter 22 and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. What was Abraham thinking? Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 17 through 19. The author of Hebrews wrote, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Understand that Abraham was fully committed to the sacrifice of his son. What was Abraham thinking? When I kill my son, God will raise him back from the dead. That's why in verse 5, Abraham told his two young men that they would both return. We're going to go up on the mountain, I and the boy, and when we come back, we will be here, both of them. That's why in verse 8, when, when that question came up, Father, where is the lamb? Abraham said, the Father will provide. That's why in verse 10, as he takes the blade to slaughter the son, he did so in confidence, knowing that if I have to kill my son in accordance with the will of God, he will raise him from the dead. Abraham's extreme obedience stemmed from his faith in God. He had experienced the faithfulness of God so vividly over the course of his life that he was confident. He knew God so well that he knew that God keeps his promises and he has promised me that through Isaac, the whole world will be blessed. That through Isaac, this promise of inherited land will be fulfilled And so he goes to the extent of taking that blade to slaughter his own son, his only son, whom he loved. One of the things you see here is that feelings don't interfere with obedience. I want you to hear that this morning. Feelings don't interfere with obedience. So often we allow our own feelings to get in the way of What we know is to be true and is to be right. We may not like it. Our flesh hears what God has for us in his word and we say, ah, but I don't like the way that tells me to behave. I don't like the way that tells me to think. And we allow feelings to interfere with obedience. We don't see that with Abraham. True obedience to God stems from faith in God. So I ask you this morning, where are you lacking in your obedience? Where are you lacking? Are you delaying obedience? Are you you putting something off, hoping that maybe it'll go away? Do you treat God's will like like everything else in, in our lives where we procrastinate and we just put it off to the last minute? Do we busy ourselves with other meaningless things? Have we grown weary in our obedience to God? Do we lack perseverance? Has the once zealous spirit that we would live and walk in accordance with God's plan and his will, has it been choked out by the cares and concerns of the world? Have we grown impatient in our obedience because some of some false expectations that we've placed on God That we're waiting on him to give us something that he hasn't promised us he would give us. Do we view obedience as an obligation rather than an act of worship? Do we lack faith in God? Do 
How have we forgotten the ways that God has proven himself to be faithful? One of the things that Joey pointed out for us last week as we were going through that, those 10 chapters was that it was, it was common for Abraham to build an altar whenever God did something that was a, a huge moment in his life so that they would remember. Have we forgotten God's faithfulness? What about, that, that's you as individuals, what about Sulphur Community Church? Are we lacking in obedience and promptness? Are we delaying something that God has called us to do? Have we grown weary that when this church was planted in this neighborhood over six years ago to reach our neighborhoods and to the nations transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, have we grown weary? Do we view serving one another and serving our neighbors as an obligation rather than an act of worship? Have we forgotten the ways in which God has proven himself over and over again to this church body of his faithfulness? What we see here in this text is that faithful people obey God and when they do, God provides for his people. We see this in Genesis chapter 22, verses 11 through 14. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Here we see some characteristics of God's provision, and we actually saying in, in one of the lyrics of the songs we sang this morning, this, this stood out to me as I was reflecting on where we're going this morning, that God's provision is always on time. It's always on time. It's never too early, and it's never too late. Here, with Abraham and Isaac, God provided not too early enough to, to prevent Abraham from following through in obedience, but not too late to spare Isaac's life. God provides. Notice also that his provision follows obedience. It does not precede it. First comes the test. Then comes the obedience. And in the midst of the obedience, God provides. Also see that the provision is sufficient. You see, Abraham is not dismissed from following through in worship and offering a burnt offering to God. Instead, what we have here is the first teaching of a substitution the lamb that will be substituted for the boy. And Abraham memorializes that place by calling it Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And even when Moses wrote these things, Moses recalls, that's why it's said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, the Lord will provide. People in Moses' day, we're still talking about that day on the mountain where Abraham 
went to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God said, stop Abraham. I see that you're, you're not going to withhold your son, your only son, from me. Here, let me provide for you the sacrifice. God provides obedient people with what they need, but he does it according to his own time. So brother or sister, do not grow impatient. Follow through with obedience because what we see is that you should not be waiting for the provision before you follow in obedience. It is in the midst of your obedience that the Lord will give you exactly what you need when you need it. Submit yourself, follow through in obedience, and he will care for you along the way. And if you're discontent with what God has given you, you're mistaken. Because God's provision is sufficient. Lastly, in this text, we see that God rewards obedience. In verse 16, he says, By myself I have sworn. This is similar to that covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. If you recall, as God himself passed through the split halves of the animals, right? And what we saw there, it was, it was not dependent necessarily on Abraham to uphold the covenant. But what God said was, as I walk through this, if, we vi- if this covenant is violated... It is on me. I will become like these animals. And that's what happened. God became like those animals. He was broken. His body was broken. His blood was poured out as Jesus Christ went to the cross because man did not uphold the covenant. And so what we see here is it's certainty. When God says, by myself I have sworn, we know that God is faithful We know that he keeps his end of the bargain. And so, it is going to happen. And so he says, you are blessed. And then he repeats all the covenant blessings that he had already given Abraham. And he follows through. He says, you will have all of these things, in verse 18, because you have obeyed. His obedience is rewarded. When we are faithful to walk in obedience, we receive the reward of God's blessing, not necessarily in this life, but in the riches that come in Jesus Christ. Speaking of Christ, one last comment here. All of Scripture is part of a grander story, right? This is God's rescue plan. This is God's plan of redemption from beginning to end. So we would be remiss if we left here thinking that this story was about Abraham and Isaac. No, this story is about God and his unlimited capacity to love men and women that he created in his image. This is a story about God rescuing us from our sin. This is a story about his son, Jesus Christ. When we consider the sacrifice of Abraham's son, his only son whom he loved, We should think of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who on the day he was baptized, the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am pleased. When we consider how Isaac was the promised Son through whom God's covenant promises would carry on, we should think of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah through whom salvation comes. When we read about how Abraham's son Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain, We can't help but think about our Savior, Jesus Christ, carrying his own cross on the road of sorrows 
up on the mountain where he would be crucified. When we read the question, Isaac asked his father, where is the lamb? We should think about the conversation. The night before he would die between the son and the father. When he says, if there's any other way. And yet we see the submission of the son to the will of the father. And when we see the submission of Isaac to Abraham to lay on top of the wood, we should think of our Christ who is willing to die to lay down his life like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But there is a difference in this story of Abraham and Isaac and the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, on the day that Jesus was bound as a sacrifice, the father did he dropped his blade of fury and wrath on the son because he was the substitute. He was our substitute as he was pierced on the cross, as he was beaten and scorned by men, despised, but he didn't open up his mouth. And just as the author of Hebrews discussed how Isaac came back from the dead figuratively, Jesus came back from the dead literally. There are so many gospel implications in this story that just creates awe and wonder at the majesty of God and His sovereign plan. I hope you see that every single word that is recorded in Scripture is part of this big picture, this grand story of your salvation. It's God's plan of redemption from beginning to end. Christian, do you, do you see the extent of the love of the Father for you? Natalie read this for us earlier, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, Paul wrote, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's go back to scenario three from the very beginning. When the captain is there and he has to push his son overboard. And if he does so, everyone will be spared. See, the difference in that scenario and what actually occurred between God the Father and the Son Jesus Christ is yes, the father did sacrifice his son, but the father said, hey, son. He didn't push him. He spoke and he said, son, there is no other way. You must die. And instead of pushing him, the son says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he went overboard himself. He laid down his life so that every other passenger on that ship would make it. That's what we see with Jesus Christ. God gave his son, his only son, whom he loves as a sacrifice to bring you back into right relationship with him. Do you see the extent of his love for you? He is worthy of your obedience. And if you're not a Christian, I want to be a friend to you this morning and tell you, you have no right to spurn this love. I tell you that graciously. Because this is the God who created you. You were created in his own image. 
And if you continue to offend God and cling to your sin, you will die your own death with no substitution. You will face eternal condemnation and separation from God's loving kindness. But if you repent, if you turn away from your sin, if you die to yourself and submit to the will of the Father, if you believe that Jesus Christ stood in your place that day on the cross, you will find forgiveness. You will find mercy. No condemnation. And you will inherit eternal life and find forever a relationship with your heavenly Father. See the extent of his love for you and believe this good news. Mm-hmm.